Here we go. Nice and quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling. Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell. I'm Liz Manichel. So this week we have a throwback episode I recorded with one of our part-time co-hosts, Samia Salami, way back in November with a really wonderful filmmaker. Uh, she's a local San Francisco Emmy award-winning filmmaker, matter of fact, Kamea Wood, who had massive, I mean massive success with her first short film Real Artists and including winning an Emmy for it. And she runs um, Coven Film Festival over in, in the city. So often the things that you think you need because they're or like are offered to you because they're free there's this inherent cost that you did not anticipate. But uh, but before we get to Cameo the network Liz. Oh yeah. I came up with the article this week because usually you do and you do so much work. And I was like, I'm going to do something for this show. So I found an article. <laughs> you do so much, Liz. <laughs> you do so sweet. much. But I often feel like I don't do enough. So I found this really cool article about how we don't really own content that we purchase from Amazon. And so the gist is, you know, when you look at Amazon or you go to, you know, your purchases under Amazon for your movie purchases, it uses the phrase your, your purchases, but actually Amazon has the right to take those movies away from you at any huh. point. And wow. um, this is just one in a, a long slew of things that Ama, Amazon does that regularly upset me. Uh, wow. And I just wanted to bring us back to, I think it was like maybe a year ago, where titles that people uploaded to Amazon through Amazon Video Direct were just disappearing because Amazon just decided to take them off. So they very often, they have a lot of power and they're, um, you know, they ha they hold up this image of being this democratic platform where we are also included in that power, but I don't think we are. And it made me miss all the DVDs that I gave away to Goodwill last year. I mean, huh. can you imagine like going back and not being able to watch Doc Hollywood? I cannot. It would be traumatic. But what are your thoughts? Yeah, this is interesting. I didn't really understand what this meant until just now. So if I bought like a season of television uh, through Amazon, you're saying that I don't necessarily own that and they could take that away from me whenever they want? It doesn't mention this in the article to my recollection, but I think it's based off of licenses. So if Amazon licenses a content library that has whatever season of TV show that you purchase and then they lose the rights to that show you don't get to keep that show in your Amazon what? library what? so it's not a purchase it's like a it's like a timeshare for <laughs> for your content wow. um, it's frustrating I don't know how timeshares work I just know they annoy people and I and that's why this is annoying well, that's really stupid because like I, I, I use Amazon because I don't have TV, right? Like I don't have a TV subscription. So if I want to watch Better Call Saul, for instance, like I'll buy that season. And then I just assume that I have that season forever on my Amazon. But you're saying like I could go in there one day and then Better Call Saul could be gone. Yeah. Um, and they probably would give you a, a warning because that's a fairly well-known show and would upset a lot of people. Uh, but... What I think is interesting is, you know, when Netflix came about, content was devalued. You know, the idea that you could get hundreds and thousands of titles for like nine ninety nine a month really changed 
the marketplace. And now we're kind of realizing it's not ownership over these contents. It's just like short term rentals over these right. contents. So it's like access. Yes, exactly. So if there's the only surefire way to have that content forever is to have a physical copy of it, which it's or to get it directly from the filmmaker who is um, as a rights holder giving you access permanently. But these major corporations are going to, um, they're not always going to have friends. They're not always going to have Better Call Saul. And so you're not always owning what you think you're owning, which is a big bummer. So you think that since I still am obsessed with Blu-rays and DVDs and I have like over 200 of them, that that's a, a good thing? I do. <laughs> I still I have do. my collection. <laughs> I do think it's okay. Um, my partner also, Sean, has his wall of Blu-rays and DVDs. Yeah. He's gotten rid of the DVDs and we do like, we'll do like voodoo for my old DVDs. So like we, <laughs> we found like the voodoo purchase of Doc Hollywood because oh, it's very important right, to me right. to have that. Uh, but yeah, I do actually think there's something, there's still, there's still value to the physical copy of the movie. And so let's not just give away our entire libraries. That's, that's good to know because I, I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Like, yeah, is it really important to watch it on the original copy? Like, you know, or, you know, if I can find it streaming, should I just watch it streaming because it's faster, it's easier. I don't have to get out off the couch to put my <laughs> Blu-ray in, you know? Um, and like to most uh, of the time, like I don't really notice much of a difference between streaming and a Blu-ray, you know, like it seems like it's pretty right. darn close, you know, um, and the, they, they all have surround sound now, you know, and so it's like I don't I'm not really getting that much more from putting my Blu-ray in. But it is really frustrating when you're looking for that movie that you want to watch, that you haven't seen and you can't find it on any of the streaming platforms. And I have like almost all of them and like it just isn't on there. It's like, oh, my gosh, like, how can I watch this? And, uh, you know, it's really frustrating. Like, I can't watch Super Mario Brothers. Like, I'm trying to watch the Super Mario <laughs> Brothers movie and it's not on anything. And I, I don't even know if you can buy it anymore you know it might be out of print so it's like that like i wish i would have bought that years ago because i really want to watch uh dennis hopper as king koopa right now you know <laughs> like i need that in my life but i can't because it's not on a streaming platform so yes i second this let's keep our collections people so here's the thing it's it was finally here are some real vod box office numbers and they show promise yes movies can make a hundred and hundred thousand dollars on streaming you know in a couple months that's pretty cool well i do want to reinforce how important it was that that article came out because vod data is notoriously like hidden away it, we do not have access to it and in fact it's like unless you're the distributor and you're talking to your client about their their numbers it's not published in a lot of places so for us to even get vod data in this like virtual streaming world or whatever these virtual cinema world that's what was so exciting to me is like oh you're sharing information i'm thrilled the other thing about this article that i liked was that it it said yes the numbers are good and yes it can movies can make money but that this doesn't prove that it can take out cinemas like we still will make more money if we put our movies in theaters so we need to do both still and i like that kind of end all of the argument of, of the article that like yes streaming is good streaming makes money but we still want our movies in theaters because that's where most of the money will still come from well and also i would love a breakdown of costs like how much are they counting for as the cost for the platform that they're taking out of the revenue that would go to the rights holder so like 
you know, the cost of a theater and the DCP and the shipments and the posters and all of these costs that it takes to do a theatrical run, we know we know what those costs are. But how much does it cost to a, to run a virtual theatrical platform and charge tickets and market and all those things? And so how much are those filmmakers really getting right now? That's what I want to know. Yeah, yeah, me too. But Oh no! So I don't know how we can find that out, but someone tell us if you know. Cause we would love to know, and we would love to tell everybody about these numbers. <laughs> but now, Ulrich, you've got mail. So this is this is uh, international iTunes review time, and this is from May fifth of twenty nineteen. The review is titled "The Best Podcast Smiley Face." Five stars from Orion B. Hi, guys. I'm a big fan of the show. Even though Timothy is not here anymore, you guys still rocks. I'm an independent photographer struggle, struggling every day, too, and I work here and there on movie sets part-time, mostly in the summer. Listening to your podcast keep me in the juice of filmmaking. I love it, and it's often really close to the struggle of photography sometimes, technically and emotionally. The highs are high and the lows are low, right? Anyway, keep it up. Orion. P.S. A little self-promotion of the end of the ending. My Instagram and website at K-A-I-V-U-N underscore visual. Um, and then the website orionboyer.com. Thanks, uh, Orion, if I'm saying your name yeah. right. That's uh, very sweet. And all the way from France, too. Amazing. So we also got uh, feedback from New Zealand from two years ago. So Matt Cranley said, incredibly valuable resource for any aspiring industry professional. Five stars. Thank you, Matt. Uh, oh, and on Valentine's Day, two years. So sweet. So <laughs> Very sweet. Nice. Uh, really enjoyed your podcast. I'm an actor with filmmaking goals from the perspective of what kind of roles do I want to play? Uh, great to hear filmmaking perspectives from all areas of the industry. Very inspiring. Thank you, Matt. That was very yeah. nice. I hope you're still listening. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, me too. I, I, I really wonder if uh, these people from other countries are still listening or if they've fallen off, but, uh, it's really great to hear from them. And, uh, you know, like, you know, we have this whole, you've got mail segment and we haven't really gotten any mail with questions or topics necessarily. But, uh, so people, if you got things for us to talk about in this section, please send them to us. Even if it's nonsense, we'll, we'll talk about it <laughs> <laughs> and we'll probably, we'll, maybe we'll make fun of you if it's really nonsense, but, uh, yeah. but probably not. I don't know. We're, we're too nice for that. I think. Will you answer it, Liz, the call? Always. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we have a Patreon page. Uh, if you want to, you know, help support us, you can go to www.patreon.com slash podcast to keep this madness uh, going. Um, you know, we, we are going to have some really awesome, uh, swag very soon. Some enamel pens, pins, enamel pins that, uh, we've ordered and, uh, should be here soon. So as soon as we get them, we'll take photos, we'll put them on, uh, the Patreon page. And then, uh, you know, at a certain price point, you'll be able to get one of those pins and they're going to be super limited edition, only 50, right, Liz? I never looked. Uh, yes, 50 <laughs> or 100 of them will be available. Yeah, and so that Ooh. means 48 or 98 because Liz and I are going to each take one. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> also, I could probably take pictures of me wearing gloves and masks, walking to Box Brothers and sending you this pin so that you know that it is clean and safe, but also probably wipe it down when you get it. Yeah, always wipe it down just in case. Um 
And if you can't support us on Patreon, you don't have a dollar or ten dollars for an ammo pin or whatever it ends up being, you can always leave us an iTunes review. Um, you know, or you can go on Stitcher and leave one there, or Google Play, wherever we are on Google, or there's all kinds of places we are. Spotify, even just uh, leave us a review and we'll read it on the show. Um, unless we get mail, then we'll read the mail instead. But you can also send us your <laughs> questions and topic suggestions for said mailbag and uh, to www. No, not www. That's not how emails work. Podcast <laughs> at makingmoviesishard.com. It'd be great to hear from you guys. Uh, is there anything else we want people to do now, or is that pretty much it? Love us. Oh, you could also like us on Facebook. We've had a, like a big surge in likes since uh, our wonderful friends at Bloodstream Media have taken over our Facebook page. We're now like over a thousand, which is oh, like yeah. super exciting. So if you wanted to get help us get to two thousand, you can like us on Facebook. That would be nice. Uh, then I'd feel like we're like a real podcast once we're like over two thousand. Ah, so soap dish. What you got for us, Liz? Well, it's not sexy at all, but I wanted to talk a little bit about term lengths for distribution contracts. Is that okay. something fun that you would want to yeah, talk about? Yeah, I'm curious. <laughs> I don't know what I should be thinking here or doing here. T- tell me what I should do. So a term length is when you're signing a distribution contract with a distributor, and right. the term length is the length of time that they will be working with you. And I would say there were trends a few years ago of these term lengths being like, 15 to lifetime deals. Oh, wow. Yeah, like 15 years to a lifetime. And uh, that was like a really dangerous world for us to live in was to give our content away for that duration. And so what I want to encourage wonderful artists in the industry to do is to consider the fact that, you know, we're in a pandemic right now, content acquisition, uh, the marketplace is changing all the time, so you might not want to work with distributors who set really long term lengths. It's just a dangerous thing to do. So this is just an encouragement of working with shorter term lengths. And usually I encourage people to do something like three to five years. Uh. But even that is... You know, it's hard to imagine what the world's going to be like in three to five years. And a lot of distributors won't cut themselves, uh, cut their term length down to less than seven. So just a recognition that it's tough to negotiate, but probably worth it because you don't want someone owning your content for 15 years or a lifetime unless they're paying you gazillions of dollars. And then it may be totally, totally worth it. Yeah, so I think seven was what I was kind of hearing as a standard. Like, I had a couple of friends who had seven-year terms for their films. Um, But you think, like, we should be going for two years, three years? Like, is that something that's reasonable to expect, or will we, like, never get that? My distribution contract for my first film was three to five years. And, I mean, it was three years with an option to renew. And I Ah. actually reached out to them close to the three-year mark and was like, please, please keep me... Uh, and ah. and they renewed. So I think that's an interesting idea is the optional renewal. And I do think three to five is a possibility. And I do think if someone's willing to cut down to seven, most amount of revenue is going to come in that first year or two. So they're keeping the title within their means of seven years uh, because it's going to slowly, it's going to become passive income for them. You know, it's just like some money is going to filter in throughout those years uh, without much effort on anyone's part. But do you think that you as a filmmaker will see money um, in the fifth and sixth year of your term with your distributor? I'm still seeing money from bread and butter and it's 
four years. Uh, I, but it's very, it's much less than it was. You know, it's much smaller amounts that I'm writing checks for. So unless your film is just one of these evergreen, you know, topical documentaries that uh, people are very interested in for long periods of time, like it's a diet film or an extreme sports documentary, or it's, um, you know, something that's not dated. And we have this concept, I think I talk about a lot, called distressed assets. And once your film becomes quote unquote old, it becomes less attractive for acquisitions. So you're not gonna wanna pitch like to Netflix a film that's five years old unless it's really done gangbusters somewhere else, unless it really made a cultural impact. So right. no, I don't think people are seeing a lot of money seven years after they release their content, but there are of course exceptions to that rule. Right, unless you become like a library title that people actually will go back and watch 10 years later, like some sort of movie that has probably some stars in it, or like you said, it had a huge cultural impact or something like that, you know? Uh, like Primer is probably one that people will still watch, um, even though that had no stars in it, just because it was such a big deal at the time and continued to be a big deal later, you know? You're talking about you still get checks for bread and butter. Did you ever go into The Black on that movie? That's the good one, right? The Black? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, 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 no. Because between uh, the marketing costs and the, um, you know, the investor disbursements, and I mean, all these things, like we're doing really well. I think it's something that gets misconstrued a lot where I'll tell people the movie cost, you know, X amount and I'll, and that we have actually grossed back the amount that the film cost, but that's gross receipts. That's not net. Right. And you have to think about the take that the platforms have, the take that the distributors have, and then all the marketing costs and the distributor. With all those things combined, it's very, very difficult to people to people for people to completely recoup. And we got a Hulu deal and we got airline deals. We did all these great, great things. So no, and I don't think it's ever going to happen. When you get a check-in from uh, your distributor, like you're writing multiple checks to different investors. Is that where yeah. the money is going? And I'm dispersing. How do you figure that out? Do you have like a spreadsheet that says like each person gets X amount of dollars or like percentage of each dollar that comes in and then you write checks for that percentage? I mean, I did straight very easy percentages with them. Okay. And that was part of their investor contract. So I can easily disperse the checks. But um, okay. very often films will go and they'll hire outside services to do those check disbursements if it's not an easy if they have a lot of investors or if the percentages aren't super easy and those services also will do sag residuals and all these other things that you have to do when you get paid yeah because I, I have um like probably 10 plus investors on my list something around there and so i know it's going to be a lot of checks each time we get a payment you know i i really feel like it'll just have to be some sort of math equation that we figure out to like break up how much everybody gets and like so we have really low <laughs> investors too like there's one like putting 500 bucks or whatever yeah <laughs> it's gonna be interesting when we get to that point in the film's life but uh but yeah, it's, it's really interesting to hear about what goes into it and and so you also pay sag out of those those uh checks as well Yes, SAG residuals are paid from um, first dollar and to, I believe, principal cast members. But I mean, this is something I'm not an expert of, uh, expert on at all. So, but yes, a lot of people are not paying their SAG residuals, but they, because they don't even know that they're due. <laughs> so. 
you are ha- handling that personally as the director, like or the producer, like you're paying, you're sending a sa- SAG a check as well as your I use investors? a payroll company for oh, SAG residuals. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, because my my friend got sued by SAG for not oh. paying SAG residuals, but he never saw a dollar from his distributor, so they weren't paying the SAG residuals through their contract, and since he never got any money from his movie, he never paid them, and then they like sued him after like four years and we're like hey where's our sag residuals for this and then i think he he had a lawyer friend like write a letter back and be like look this filmmaker has seen zero dollars from this movie there is no money to pay sag residuals and then i think that it was like some sort of series of letters that got him out of it but uh but it's a tough thing man it is tough and also i think um i guess this is another tip is that when you're doing when you're negotiating a distribution contract, there are clauses that either refer to whether the distributor pays the SAG residuals or you do. And so you just have to pay attention to that too. So I'm sure from what you described, your friends, like the distrib- it was on the distributor to do that, but sometimes it's not. And sometimes the distributor makes sure that you are overseeing that. I think, I think it was that he was, uh, he was supposed to oversee it, but I mean, what do you do when you don't get any money from your yeah. distributor? Like, yeah. I don't know, are you supposed to pay it out of your own pocket? I don't know. It I seems, don't know. It's seems wrong. All right. The player, Liz, what do we got? So I asked female DPs to tell us stories about how they crafted the perfect frame. We just talked to Julia Swain uh, today that will come out many weeks later from this. But I was talking about how I just love to hear about how uh, cinematographers work and like what their process is. So I know these are gonna be fascinating stories just to hear like what do they look for in the perfect frame? What is a perfect frame to them? Because I'm sure we're gonna get, you know, a bunch of different answers, you know, if we have two or three or more uh, sound bites here. So yeah, I can't wait to hear these. Also, it just sounds like they're magical moments in their lives. Like this prompt elucidated, like just, like this kind of nostalgic feeling in the stories, which I enjoyed a lot. What What was your, do you have a perfect frame moment in your filmmaking life where you like looked at the monitor and it was like, this was what it was supposed to be for you? When I was in college, I saw this, um, this photograph by Dwayne Michelle called this photograph is my proof. And it was so impactful to me that um, it became a major inspiration for speed of life. And we recreate the photograph in speed of life and that recreation of the photograph is probably my favorite frame ever. And Ju- Julia took that photo. So, um, like, my first company was called This Is My Proof, based off of the photograph, This Photograph Is My Proof. I just really, really love this image, and I have it framed in my house. So, um, yes, the fact that Julia recreated this thing that was so important to me is um, my favorite frame. But what's your favorite frame? Well, first off, you'll have to uh, include the original photograph and the recreation from Speed of Life uh, in the show notes because I do really want to see these. That sounds amazing. What a great story. I do have one. So when we were making the alternate, there was a scene, you know, we shot and then I had written. It was one of the original scenes that was from the early, early draft. So it was something that had been in the movie probably since like draft, the first draft, I think, like way back. And we shot it. And it was so perfect. It was like exactly as as I had always imagined it to be, and how I wanted it to be. And I and I was fucking crying on set like a little baby because I just loved it so much. It was 
it was it. It was what it was supposed. It was it. He, they, we just nailed it. And like, you know, from the way that the camera moved to like the expression on the actors' faces to everything, it was just it was exactly what it was supposed to be. And uh, you know, I, I edited that scene like the next day or something, like after we shot it, and it was like that's it. And then like that version of that scene is how what's going to be in the movie, I think, because it was just it was it. It was so so nice. So I'll I'll, I'll try to find a frame from yeah. that to to bring into the the show notes because yeah, it was it was the moment and like I I don't really know if I've ever really had that kind of I've had like one strong moment like that on on one of my, like on my first short film where it was like this was a frame that was in my mind that we put onto film you know or digital film, but it hadn't happened since then. So it was really a big moment to be like oh my gosh. This is happening on my first feature. I can't believe it. I was—I don't think I've ever cried looking at the monitor or being on set. I'm just thinking of like how wonderful that is that you achieved that level of satisfaction on set. <laughs> you know? I mean, it was really a special moment, and I talked about it a lot. I talked about it in my my logs. I talked about it to the crew in the meeting the next day before we started. I was just like, it was such a big moment for me. Oh man. And uh, yeah, I can't wait for people to see that scene. Cause it was really, now I sound like, an, I don't know. I feel like when I'm too in love with my movie, I sound like a jerk. Cause, no. uh, but no. <laughs> no, cause it doesn't, I mean, this is not to insult you. It doesn't mean it's good. It just means that right. it's what you wanted, you know? Right. So it, it, you don't sound like a jerk at all in any way. And I'm sure right. it is good too. I just don't, you know, it, that's the jerky part of it is this. If right. you're like, I'm so great. I'm the like if I'm crying because it's so wonderful and I'm just crying because it was so like, it was such a beautiful thing to me, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, testament to my crew, to my cinematographer, to my actors, to everybody, to, you know, and like we did it all together. Like I couldn't have done that by myself. Right. Like it was only something that we could do with this crew. And I think that's what I love about filmmaking. It's just like these beautiful moments that you can you get lucky and they, they appear before you. Hi, I'm Sarah Phillips. I'm a cinematographer in Los Angeles. The best frame I've ever created, or rather the most fun I ever had creating a frame thus far, was on a film called Lilac Ocean Pumpkin Pine. The scene was a young candle maker woman was dying and so she lit every candle that she owned. I was super intrigued by the idea of lighting a whole scene with just candles. And we ended up with some really interesting fragmentation and aberrational artifacts sort of in the lens from all of the candles being lit. And I think it's some of the most beautiful footage that I've shot. Hi, I'm Tracy Kring, a director of photography and my best frame that I've ever created would be, I guess, not really based on artifice. I mean, as a director of photography, you know, you get really lucky sometimes and, you know, you're there to capture magic. And I feel like that when I am r rolling on something totally unique and special that's happening, that's unfolding between two actors, I guess that's my favorite time to be behind camera on a movie, The Night We Met, which you can catch on Tubi. There was a scene, a love scene, very tame love scene, in a minivan. And I was in the very back of the van shooting towards the middle seat. The two actors were silhouetted against, you know, kind of like the panel lights of the van. 
And um, I don't know, gosh, it was like I didn't exist. I wasn't even there. And I was just like a fly on the wall watching these two characters having this really beautiful moment. And it was just super special. I guess those are really my favorite frames when I'm the person who is committing this event, this, this beautiful moment to film. That's my favorite. Hello, I'm Elif Koyturk and I'm a documentary a filmmaker, cinematographer, director. <laughs> the best image I've ever made in my life uh, would be from my nomadic film um, from Last Guardians of Anatolia. Um, it's a scene of migration. There is action, uh, there's a movement and there, it's, it's a real flow of life because, I mean, it's a documentary and they're really migrating. And you, you hear the screams and the colors and it's fast. And I was standing there seeing that moment for a couple months before I shoot it. And I felt it, like there, the, every step they you know, take, I felt it right in my heart while making that imagery. And that's why it's so special to me. So whenever I watch it, I exactly feel there that I am there, I am hearing it, I am smelling them. And that's what it makes my, uh, that best imagery in my life, I think that I take. Um, the moment, if you are capable of that image to make you feel like you are there is a best image anyway. I think it's really hard to classify the best image ever you made because there's a lot of different moments in life where you can feel that heartbeat of the moment through a camera. Uh, have you met Kamea before? Do you know her? Uh, we're Twitter friends. Oh, nice. <laughs> but I don't know her Excellent. other than that, just through Twitter. So I had heard of her for a long time through many different people in the Bay Area. And then Samia was friends with her and was like, oh my gosh, you have to have Camille on the show. And I was like, oh, absolutely, let's do it. But there's so much good stuff in it. And Camille was so... Uh, open and honest and um, just like really detailed how she has done what she's done and how she's approached her career and I think it's super super valuable and super useful and really really get into it a couple times about some tough experiences she had as a woman um, you know trying to make her first film so uh, so yeah I think on that note let's get to our conversation with Kameo and Samia I should say my name is Cameo Wood. I'm a filmmaker. Uh, I ha also have a film festival. Uh, I started making films about uh, five or six years ago. Um, I've worked on, as a producer, some films. And uh, my first film, my first narrative project, uh, was Real Artists. And that came out in 2017. And I also have a film festival called Coven Film Festival, which is here in San Francisco, January 10th, and that is for uh, women and non-binary directors of shorts and features. This is our second year. I also teach filmmaking um, to students um, with a paid internship, and I also host a series of dinners with Cinefem called Dinner with Dames, where um, we get VIP filmmakers from the industry to talk to local women filmmakers from all parts of the industry. 
um, about how to further their careers. Um, so Real Artist, that was your first uh, short film that you ever made? Yes, so that, yeah, Real Artist is the first narrative short that I have ever made. I saw it just the other day, it's fantastic. And you know, it's played what, you said 300 film festivals yeah, and it won an Emmy recently, congratulations. Thank you. It's amazing. Uh, and just for us who don't know, could you just tell us a, a little bit about your feature that you crowdfunded? I did have to switch it up a little bit. So now it's a little, it's, it's much more based in the world of real artists. So it is not going to be a time travel movie. Oh, is it a, like a feature version of real artists now in some way? Um, yes and no. So um, real artists is based on a short story by Ken Liu. I wrote the screenplay, but it's based on his short story. So this feature film is similar in tone but it's not based on the characters and it's not based on Ken Liu's story and world. Because again, it makes it complicated if I have to get the rights to his characters and his world and whatever. So is it more based off of your short, yes. but not his work? That's right. Okay, interesting. And then that way you own all the rights too, right? That's right. When you did the crowdfunding campaign of the movie, were you marketing it as a time travel movie? Yeah, but I was raising money for development and I was also raising money with the idea that I'd be shooting a feature film in my hometown. Oh, okay. And and I had a co-writer, you know, we were working on it and we just couldn't get it to where it needed to be. The key element that I think people were responding to, you know, women of color as the primary protagonist based in Western Massachusetts, being hard science, not fantasy. So I was like, I'm gonna keep all these things that are true throughout the time travel because it just wasn't working. As long as you're being true to your director and artist vision, that's the most important thing. That actually does lead to something I do want to talk about, sure. like partnerships in film. How does one navigate that? And how does one foster good partnerships? Because it seems like that is the thing you're going to have to contend with as a filmmaker, whether that's with a producer or a co-writer. But those relationships can get really tricky. Responsibilities can get really tricky. So like, what have you learned about that and navigating that? The number one thing I've learned is have incredibly clear contracts that are written while you're friends and you know you have a good working relationship but with an eye to what's going to happen in the worst case scenario you know when you're not friends and things didn't work out or feelings were hurt and you know always try to make sure that people don't get to that situation but you know even I remember there's something with my editor and I had a contract with her and at some point I was like hey um, I'm waiting for the third edit for this week where is it and she's like uh, no, we had two edits and you get some revisions and then that's it. And I was like, wait, what? And I checked the contract and sure enough, she was 100% right. I'm like, whoa, my bad. I'm so sorry. Could we do a new contract? And she's like, yes, of course. Um, but I completely forgot what we had agreed to and having the contract saved it. And now like, you know, I still work with her and I love her and we have a great relationship because the contract really details out what we've promised to each other. So I feel like I now have my lawyer is my favorite person. I talk to them all the time. I have contracts with everyone. And now that I have contracts, everything is great. Contracts are, I think, really important because it is easy to get into a disagreement, especially over something creative between artists, you know? And so I haven't really worked on anything with anyone that didn't have a contract of some kind. I also don't collaborate that much. You know, I've usually kind of in my own bubble, although I love collaborating. It's a lot of fun. I did have a situation, something weird, where I had hired somebody and they had subcontracted out on their contract you know, people to work on my set. Somebody that was like below the line, you know, and, and they had to go and like hire drivers to move pieces of set or whatever it was. And at the end of the day, they basically told all those people to come to me for their paychecks. I don't have a contract with you. Like, I don't, I've never even met you. Like, I don't know. And like, that's part of this person's contract was to 
get pieces to the set, take the pieces away. And there was just like a lot of confusion about that. It was awkward for sure. But then did they end up getting paid through the person they were supposed to get paid through? No. Turned out that the person I had a contract with who told me they had insurance and they were an LLC and da da da, none of it was true. Oh, it was all bull. It was all bull. So they scammed? They scammed. Wow. Oh my mm -hmm. gosh. So then what happened to the people who didn't get paid? Uh, I, I paid them. It was my first film and I didn't want to be that person who, yeah. you know, reneges. And now I know if anyone's on my set, they need to sign something saying they don't work for me. <laughs> They're getting paid from that person. Right. Otherwise, you can't come on my set. And I didn't know it was something I had to manage, but now I know. So bottom line, have a contract. I think contracts have saved all my relationships. Let's talk about real artists some more. So sure. you have this movie, you shot it, you get the crowdfunding, you do the post-production. Mm -hmm. So like, what is your strategy for film festivals? I think that for a lot of people, your first strategy is to look at things that um, have like a premiere requirement. So I did that first. Um, and for the most part, I was successful in targeting things. Like there was a couple, like I had a Texas premiere too early so that another big, big festival was like, oh, like you've already shown in Texas, we're done. And another one in the UK. So that was kind of like a disappointment because it wasn't clear. Because the problem is, is that like if you submit to Academy qualifying or bigger festivals first that have a premiere requirement, then that means you're missing out on other really like awesome second tier festivals right. that will invalidate that premiere. Right. So right. it's hard to kind of navigate that. But uh, more and more festivals are, especially for shorts, don't right. care anymore. So where did you end up premiering? So I actually premiered on the same day in two places. One was at Cinequest, and then the other one was at um, Manchester. Just out of curiosity, what was the Texas premiere that you had? It was at the Austin Revolution Film Festival. And that kept you out of South by Southwest? Um, no, it kept me out of Austin. From that point, you get into Cinequest, you premiere at this other, you know, and this in Manchester same day then what's the strategy from there is it just like blanket like as many film festivals as possible For those I think I had to apply three months earlier and so I had no idea so I tried to do the premiere requirement once first so it was like Cinequest SF Film I also you know focus on Bay Area ones because yeah. I was like I wanted to get into one but then I was lucky enough to do Cinequest SF Film Mill Valley Sonoma Napa wow. and Oakland <laughs> So all the good so ones. So I did all of them. Nice. Um, and SFND. So I did all of them. Which Oakland one was it? The Oakland Film Festival. Real Artist has been in over 300 film festivals. Wow, crazy. Um, and I did travel to maybe 50 or 60 of them. So it was pretty interesting. And then it was also like at a couple of museums in Berlin and Seattle. Wow. Amazing. Um, and it's been on TV a few times. So how do you get into, was it just like a submitting to a bunch of them to get to 300? Or was it getting into a few key ones and then you get invited to other ones? For me, it was getting a few key ones and then going there personally and then getting an advocate. And so now I run a film festival and now I sort of know that one of the things that happens if your film's awesome um, is you know either you're gonna have somebody at that film festival that programs you and then tells other film festivals like if you're looking for something awesome, look at this. So like Austin Revolution, they sent my film to a bunch of other film festivals. Oh, I see. Because they're like, we love it. We want to share this, you know, with other people so you can get it at other film festivals that are, um, you know, that we're friends with. You know, there's other people. For example, there's an amazing film programmer here in um, Edison Film that's helped program me at other film festivals that they work for and music festivals. Okay. So I've gotten programmed so many places because somebody like believes in my film and you know, there's a call out on Facebook or whatever to other programmers saying, we need more films like made by women with, you know, protagonists 
that are women, that are people of color, that's rated G, maybe about technology or sci-fi right, or whatever. Right. Does anybody know of any that have been made in like the last three years? Right, right. And they're like, oh, here's this one. And they have a poster, everything's in the right format. You can show it on 35 right. millimeter, like whatever it is. And I vouch that this person has their shit together. So you had a DCP and a 35 millimeter print? That's one of the benefits of premiering at a DCP film festival is that a lot of them will pay for your DCP. Oh, okay. So yeah. Or give you a massive discount. Wow. Yeah, I didn't have that. <laughs> and now you can get 35 millimeter prints for $1,000 from this place in the UK. Oh, really? But does your film have to be shot on film? No. Uh, or you can just get a 35. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, just think of like digital photos. Right. You can get them right. on a negative. Is that something that you recommend filmmakers do or only when they need it? Almost nobody wants to show my film on film. <laughs> so it's kind of a bummer. It's been shown um, at Maine International, Encounters... A couple others right. but it's only when there's a film nerd who's like you shot your you know movie on film and you can show it on film i think like the biggest venue it ever showed at was man's chinese theater at holly shorts oh nice yeah awesome. which is a, a fest i really recommend it was yeah. absolutely wonderful i met some of the coolest collaborators there and one of them was nominated for an academy award that year would you do it again shoot and film i was at sundance like three or four years ago just before real artists um, so we, we shot Real Artists, I think, in like May or June, and I went to Sundance that year. And I was pretty much like, you know, we're going to shoot on a Red Epic, and this is just whatever. Um, and there was a, something at Sundance about um, why should you shoot on film. And I kind of went there thinking that this was going to be ridiculous, and who shoots on film? And I sort of had like in my mind, it's just like a, an affectation to be sort of, sort of like Tarantino or something. So I went in thinking there was no way that I would ever shoot on film. But, um, and it was a, a talk with Rachel Morrison, who had just shot Fruitvale on film, and Chris Nolan, who shoots everything on film, and Colin Trevorrow, who had shot all of his films on film, I think, but his first yeah. one was Safety Not Guaranteed, which had won the Waldo, Waldo Salt Award the year previous at Sundance. Rachel Morrison and Colin Trevorrow both had really interesting things to say that have nothing to do with the fidelity of the picture. What they actually said was that it lends an aspect of gravitas to your set and to the work you're doing. And that as a first time filmmaker, you know, Colin Trevorrow and Rachel Morrison were saying that it, you know, sort of made people take things more seriously because as filmmakers and film buffs, we have this ingrained idea of the importance and the scarcity of film and that we should take the opportunity much more seriously than if somebody's just shooting on like a DSLR or um, an iPhone or something, that right. this is something very serious. And so as a first time filmmaker, I was like, I need all the help I can get. It was pretty accurate because people were very excited to work on film. I had somebody that was, um, you know, had worked on Jurassic World and was so excited about working on film, basically like gave me this ridiculous rate. I got the film nearly for free. I got the camera for free. Wow. There's a lot of equipment that um, in this area that was primarily used for film, like you know, a Fisher um, dolly that people just aren't using because all their equipment is just so lightweight. Yeah, we were able to get like a Fisher 10 really cheap. So there's a whole bunch of equipment that's just kind of sitting around because no one's shooting on film that you can just take advantage of. Like, oh, you need like a one ton, you know, jib or a crane like we have that no one wants it you know um so it's it's a funny thing and then people are like oh it's supposed to be so expensive to do whatever and it's like well you know if i had a film loader you're gonna need someone to dit i didn't have to do backups or anything 
um, and manage all my cards. And also every single shot was one to three takes. That's it. And we were just moving, moving, moving. Right. Well, cause you have to, you can't, you can't afford to do more than that, right? Half my film was not used. Oh wow. Cause we had thought we might need six to eight takes, Oh wow. but nope, we were so fast. We had doubled the film. Wow. And you can't sell that back. You can't sell that back. Yeah, I just remember my buddy made a film when he was 19 and he shot on film. And I remember that the whole deal was do like six rehearsals, but only two takes because they just didn't have the money to do anything else but that, you know? So that was sort of went into his discipline. I tried to do that. I was like, oh, let's do some rehearsals before we shoot. But then everyone's just like, just roll on the rehearsal because we can. And it's yes. like, okay, well, this is the world that we're living in. So we'll just do it that way. And it does change like the feeling of the set because yeah. like you could just keep recording. That's not a bad thing because I think sometimes in rehearsals you do find little moments that aren't replicated later they're just like little things that you don't get you know on take three or four I think that like for me I had two TV actresses so these were people that had completely different ways of presenting their um, their lines and their characters absolutely prepared there were like no mess ups whereas like I think it'd be harder to shoot on film if I had people who you know really needed more rehearsal or more takes to get where they needed to be right it'd be a different thing right but for real artists I think it was a, a an appropriate medium just because of everything else that was going on and it also made the editing process much faster because again we didn't have that many takes. Right. You could have had more. That was more like you as a filmmaker. Again, first time and I, I needed to make my day. So I had a lot of pressure because we only shot for about, we shot for three days. We had 10 hour days. You know, we had a whole bunch of other stuff going on. It was incredibly hot. We were competing with a children's camp going on during oh, really? filming. Wow. Yeah, we just had to make it work. So are you advocating for film and like basically saying that it's not as expensive as we all think it is? I am advocating for film, for sure. I think that um, if I had shot digitally, maybe some of my setups would have been faster because the lighting might have been a little simpler. No one was looking at their phone on the set. Everybody right. was like on it. The film processing was probably pretty expensive. For real artists, I think it was like $6,000. I don't have to buy like big multi-terabyte drives and cards right. and chargers and all this other kind of stuff. It's a whole thing. Also, you can't on the set, you can't check what you did. Do you have video playback sometimes on film? Because I think there are systems that you can do that, but I mean, didn't. you didn't have that. It was just the old school Yeah, style. we were using like a Millennium XL2. Like uh, what you saw on the monitor during the take is what you had. Right, and you didn't get to check it. So um, it kind of changes everything everything about how you're doing it. Like we needed five people to be watching um, on the monitors. Hair person's watching, I'm watching, continuity's watching. Like There is a, a certain level of phone-itis, I guess you could call it, where people just drift to their phones um, yeah. during takes, especially in the grip and electric departments, right. you know, those guys, I mean, bless them. They're, uh, you know, they're really focused when it's time for lighting. And then after they check the image, mm -hmm. it's like, you know, they kind of they kind of drift. To me, it's like, I love film, obviously, right? Like who doesn't love film? I've never worked with film before I've always assumed that I never would because I don't have any big budgets to work with and it's not something that I really find personally um, driven to do because I really like the look of digital too like I think reds and Alexa's look great you know maybe one day I'll get to do it you're kind of selling me on it so the other thing too is like when you look at my budget the thing that was really expensive was people and feeding them, right? right? Yeah. And so if it's like if I can do limited takes very little downtime quick setups, quick turnarounds, no one's messing around, then that might reduce how much time I have to spend. My actors are on the set much less. We can do like, I don't know, like I think Real Artists was something like 47 setups in three days, 10 hour days. That's incredibly good. Um, even for digital. Right. And we had, you know, dollies, we had rails, we had all kinds of stuff. Right. Jibs and stuff, special effects shots. You know, with all of that and like green screen and everything, 
I, I remember seeing this thing, and like, I love Peter Jackson, but there's this one part of The Hobbit where um, uh, Frodo is, um, you know, coming down the stairs and doing this brief scene, and they did like 70 takes. And he's like, well, because it doesn't cost anything. What? Like, you're paying your entire crew, your location, your greens, you're doing your actor. Like, this is a day for this one meaningless kind of scene right. that doesn't really need 60 takes when you have, you know, the actors you have. I don't know why. And it just, and it's this idea of like, it's digital, does it cost anything? And it's like, no. Well, but the time is everything. Yeah. Yes. yeah. It's your location. It's everything like it costs so much to have everyone sitting around right that that just means that you're you're putting everything on set on the day it just it infuriates me to watch playbacks i hate doing that <laughs> and i hate that it's built into our culture of set today that you have to watch the thing I hate doing that, so if I could completely well, eliminate you're that. You're the director. You can decide if to watch play. I know, but if it's there, I want to see it. Well, okay. as if I don't have access to it and I can just, like, know I mean, it's I going to be okay. I try not to watch it unless you have to, unless it's, like, you know, something where the cinematographer wants to watch it to, to, to show me something or if, you know, it's, like, you know, you, just to make sure that we got what we think we got, you know, those sorts of situations. But there's definitely times where we just won't watch it at all. We're just like, oh, yeah, no, we got it. Let's go. Move on. Let's go. Because mm -hmm. I feel like timing and decision making are like the most important things that I try to improve as a director. So like mm -hmm. if someone asks me a question or if it's time to decide to move on, then I know that I can give that answer quickly. I don't know if you remember like in Real Artists, but there was a scene with no dialogue where Anne and Sophia were kind of walking down this hallway to go into the theater. Mm -hmm. And it was a really complicated shot. It required, um, you know, rails. It had complicated lighting. We had to dress it a little. Um, and in order for you to see her walk into the room, into the theater, and see the screen, we actually had to set up a rear projection of this film. And the rear projection had to be cued at the exact right time that the door opens. And we had some green screen special effects. It was just a really complicated shot. And I was like, well, I at least need to get all my dialogue. And we were heading, I think, the second day. And in between setups, my crew would run to do this, to set it all up, get the rear projection working, get the rails all set up, figure out how it was all going to work. And then by the end of the day, I think we had like one hour left. And we knew that we had like three hours needed to finish setting up that shot because it was a really complicated shot. And I was just like, you know what? I'd rather call the day a day early than keep everyone three hours over what I said. So I called it and my crew was furious because they were like, we believe in this shot. Like we believe this is an important shot. The next day, again, in between takes, everybody was running over and they like made it amazing. So that by the time we're about to go into the main theater scene, they're like, we have it all. It's gonna be amazing. Like we have to do it. We all believe that we have to have this shot. Wow. And we got it. And I'm so glad we did because it's definitely like an atmospheric kind of thing that sets the tone. You know, we had a huge crew of like 40 people. Wow. And so they set up that shot like across two days to have it ready to, to go. And then how many takes of it did you do? I'd say five, maybe okay. five or six. At least it wasn't 10. No, it wasn't 10. It wasn't 10. It was complicated because we needed, um, you know, the cameras on a dolly and that needed to track perfectly with the way they were walking and they had to walk over the dolly while not looking at it. Mm -hmm. And then there was a special effects shot with a green screen and then the coordination of what was on the um, the rear projection screen when they walked in the door. Right. And all had to be silent. So we had to communicate through like groups of people waving their hands. Anyway, so there's just like a lot of things. We had to practice it for maybe a half an hour. Wow, before oh. you, wow. Um, to really, and like, 
no one really appreciates how hard that scene was to do, but it was so hard to do. Oh, and if you are listening to this podcast and you're wondering what we're talking about, um, Real Artist actually has a whole series of behind the scenes videos of how we made every single scene. I was going to talk to you a bit about being a woman and being a filmmaker and rather less broadly being a new filmmaker as well. I feel like sometimes when I'm on set I'm trying to make decisions Mm -hmm. Um, and I am the director and I'm a new filmmaker and I am met sometimes with differing opinions from men because Mm -hmm. that's a lot of the film industry Mm -hmm. and in those moments I have to pause and think okay does he know more than me because he's been doing this longer or He's just not respecting my perspective. How do you handle those moments? Real artists, all of my head of departments were all women and they got to hire whatever crew they wanted. So in general, like, no, I've made a few projects and I've never had a man in general, because you're specifically talking about gender, I think initially, I've never had anyone tell me like, this is how it needs to be other than another woman who I specifically hired and we've talked about everything way in advance. So I've never been in a situation, I do have this luxury of being able to hire my own crew. I will say that on Real Artists, we did have this thing where I had hired a direct, a producer rather, and I had said to him, like, I need at least gender parity. And I already hired a cinematographer, Kim Kulata, who was amazing. And he sort of went out to get crew and gear and had come back and said, nobody wants to work for a woman cinematographer. So I told everyone I was gonna do it and I was gonna co-direct it, but we have this amazing crew of men who will work for free, as long as they're working for me. And I got it and it's fine. Is this 2017? Yeah, 2016. I basically was horrified. I um, I called and I was like, hey, um, you know, I think that we're just gonna delay the shoot and we don't need to work together. And what was his reaction to that? I think that he didn't think I was gonna be able to do it. Able to fire him or do it yourself? After that had happened, I called my actors and I was like, so we're not shooting next month, sorry. And I think that people were very worried that this was the end because I had to cancel everything. I think that we had fired him at the moment when we, you know, had to make these hard decisions. Right. I do feel like I, you know, people lost trust. Well, yeah, in you. In right? me. Yeah, that's um, tough. And they were like, oh, well, this movie's never going to Especially come. with actors who yes. don't know you and who are professionals, you know, and it's like, you're trying to earn their trust yes. as a filmmaker, you know. Exactly. Was that a hard decision for you or was it easy based off of like your convictions? There was no alternative for me. Right. Um, there was no way I was going to like fire my cinematographer and not be the director of a thing that. Wait, so you were saying you wouldn't be the director? I, that we'd be co-directors. You and the, the guy? And he would shoot it. So, but then thankfully, you know, I went out to my producers and I said, look, we need to have gender parity. It's not a thing we can negotiate on right and they all sort of pushed back and said but we don't really know any women your crew said that yeah oh interesting like we don't know any like women first ad's who work in san francisco or we don't know any women who do sound and so and i was just like wow it looks like you need to make new friends i pushed back super hard and so we you know found those people and then you know here we had this set that was i think it was like 75 percent um women Um, 60% women of color, people, you know, who had disabilities, people who were, you know, transgender. Like, we really were just like, all things being equal, let's try to find, um, you know, people who are underrepresented in film. That's good for you. It was amazing for us. And it also meant that all these people now knew, if anyone ever said like, hey, how do we find a sound recordist that is like a woman? Or how do I, you know, do we know any gaffers that are, 
you know, women. Facing this myself is like a lot of my contacts and the people I know are men and a lot of the people I can call favors on are men. So I've been feeling a little bad lately, like realizing that my crew for my feature is mostly men. I do have a lot of female producers, which is really great, you know, but it's something that I've been struggling with. And it's like, I think it's good to make an effort as much as you can, but I can't, I don't know. I was like really beating myself up that I had a lot of male department heads, but I also just thought, you know what? That's what you have for this movie. You can make another movie where you have different choices, you know, and just do the best you can to be as inclusive as possible. Uh, Cause I know a lot of listeners are probably out there listening like, well, I don't know any women either, blah, blah, blah. And as long as you're trying to make an effort, you're going in the right direction. But, um, you know, I definitely think it's something that I want to work on myself and like include more women on my sets. I think it's a big thing that we need to work on as filmmakers. I would also like to add to that, that there are a bunch of Facebook groups with women. I know um, Brown Girl Doc Mafia is one of the biggest ones and it's a huge database. There are all sorts of women on there, women nice. DPs, gaffers, all sorts. I feel like one of the things I actually struggled with was trying to find people to match my very tiny budget. And right. a lot of the times, those weren't women. I feel like the thing about it sometimes is that when you are out here struggling, people don't necessarily have the privilege of struggling with you because they don't have, like, right. they, you know, people who are in the same position as you sometimes, they need resources to right. fall back on. They can't, like, have their dairy or, um, I think in my case, like, or a stipend right. and I wouldn't want to ask anybody to do that right. I remember like when I was working with Jason in particular I was looking for a woman DP he has a, a friend named Jason who ended up being my DP and I remember one of the reasons I actually ended up working with Jason besides liking his work was that he also had a lot of his own gear it's really difficult to find people like that it's tough and I mean for me too it's like like a lot of these people are the people I came up with I PA'd with like eight years ago and like worked on my first short film for free or my second short film or whatever so it's like you got to pay back the loyalty for all of the things that people have done for you over the years and it's like I think in that way that there's a little bit of um, male dominance on my on my sets but I feel like in fact you're totally hitting on why most sets are male dominated. Like right. if you go to TV or whatever, it's like, why Like why is your crew these people? It's like, well, this guy helped me out, this guy helped me out, we all right. went to film school, we've all been doing the same thing. And it's like, well, why are there no women in your crew, like on your, you know, right. lighting or, you know, your electric, whatever. It's like, these are not the people that have helped me. They're not in my industry. I don't know any. Right. Um, and when I work on a new job, they'll say, who do you know? Who are you working with? It's like, I can vouch for these people. I don't know any women. Right. I don't know any people of color. And it becomes this problem in our industry where when there are no women, women don't feel welcome right. and it's not the place to go. And so, you know, it's super hard. Like I just shot a short as part of the Sundance collab project this spring. And I sort of did the same thing. I was like, we need at least 50% parity. So I hired like the only woman stunt coordinator. Okay. Um, I hired, uh, I, I desperately tried to find a, um, a first AD and I couldn't. But you know, um, and the guy that we had, and I'm sorry, his name is escaping me, but he was saying, you know, I've been working as a first AD for about um, 20 years in San Francisco, and I've never worked with a woman cinematographer or a woman director or a woman gaffer, really? ever. Wow. And we had all three on our set. Wow. And he's like, yeah, never, like he only does commercial stuff really. Right. And occasionally like, TV shows, but he's like, yep, never seen it. Yeah. And everyone he brought had never seen it, had never worked on it. I've definitely worked with uh, women gaffers, women ACs and cinematographers, you know, um, 
I think sound, I think almost every department head, you know, um, so I know they're there. It's just like, you know, maybe they're not as fre frequent or as, you know, many of them as other, as men, you know, but yeah, I know. I think it's like, I hate that idea that people say it, you can't find them or they don't exist because they do exist. Well, I guess they, they don't exist as people who work for free or reduce rates. Necessarily, but I feel like it takes like reaching out and working with women on a project and trying working to work with new people. Like for someone like me, like it'd be very easy for me to say like, well, I've only worked with men before because that's who I came up with. I'm going to work with men. But like, I'm clearly trying not to make, I'm not making that, making the other decision, basically trying to go in the other direction and reach out to new people mm -hmm. because I feel like it's important, you know, Absolutely. just like, you know, in, in inclusion on screen, if I think it's just as important on sets too. You know, but uh, I definitely think it's it's not necessarily the easiest thing to do. Um, but I think people need to put that aside and try anyways. Yeah. Yeah, and get your funds together so you can actually like work with the people you really want to work with. Right. Exactly. Which I feel like a lot of the times is the case. You know, yeah. it's like it's about like really admiring people and really wanting to work with them and feeling like you can't afford it's like i wouldn't want to take advantage of this person i know exactly where they are you know and also like you know at least for us like i was fortunate in that i have um you know some people that are here at filmhouse x uh they have a company called liars and thieves i had said to them i have an amazing woman cinematographer that's coming up from la to yes. shoot this for me you know to save money instead of renting a kit can i have your camera Oh, and he's and he was like, you know, give me a COI and it's yours for the oh, week. Awesome. So I got his whole package, wow. you know, because he was like, I want to support, you know, women directors. I want to support you. Mm. I, I, I believe in what you're doing. Here's my whole package. Like, as long as you have real insurance and I get a COI, yeah. Wow. And same with my lighting kit. I basically said, I have a women, you know, I, I have this crew of diverse people. Um, we're doing this project for Sundance. Um, you know, can you help me? Right. And pretty much everyone said yes. That's awesome. All these, you know, men that I had hired in the past or people that I hired in the past, right. um, I was like, I don't really need your labor. What I really need to save money is I need your gear right. Right. or your location. Support this, you know, female gaffer who doesn't have their own lighting company to fall back on, who wants to gaff a movie. That's a, that's a good way to approach it. Well, it's, it's also just, but, you know, it's like the answer to someone like me who would say, I don't know those people, yeah. you know, or they don't have their own gear. It's like, well, there are other solutions. Well, especially if somebody's like, oh, yeah, I've got like two sets of camera gear. I've got like two reds or whatever. Right. It's like, can I have one for like the week or, you know, like you're probably shooting for, you know, 30 right. days. You know, you could say like, can I have your package? Because right. surely you're not working every day, right. Right. you know, and can you Absolutely. can you do me a solid in that way? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you never know. And I right. think that at least for me and what I do, I have to have, you know, at least 50% of my department heads. Um, otherwise, I feel like I'm, um, I'm because I, I can get men, thank you, men, you're all wonderful, you give me free labor, and I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, but I only need 50% of you. Right, right. There's a line and um, yeah, so and I need a lot of the people in. And is that something you're going to hold to for the rest of your career, that 50% parity? Dude, I, is, as I'm everything I can possibly do. I mean, you know, we'll see if there's ever a project where um, it's just too good to walk away from, and right. I hope there's not. Right. Um, but I do feel like, you know, it is incumbent upon me um, to use whatever I have to make sure that, you know, 
any kind of PA or writing assistance or whatever that right. they are paid a livable wage, right. people get overtime, people are right. insured, they're protected, right. and that we have inclusion of, you know, is there anyone who's applied that has a disability? Um, let's really talk to them, right. even if their resume is, a, you know, a, a, a quick second of, of, of experience. Like, but who knows? Because a lot of times people will say, uh, I don't know if we need a sound recorder in a wheelchair. How are they going to follow us around? It's right. like, well, can they? Because this is a small set, and this right. seems fine, you know. And if they have a boom up, you know, exactly. like they they don't they, the sound mixer is sitting behind the, you know, cart anyway. So absolutely. And how can we be more inclusive? Or like right. you know, and, and we had um, you know other people that had other kinds of disabilities, and you know, and sometimes people don't hire them. Right. for that reason. Right. Um, so a lot of it is just saying like, how how can we have the most inclusive workspace? Right. And, you know, an understanding that when I see a resume from, you know, a white guy with, you know, 15 feature films in the Bay Area, and right. I have another one from a, you know, a young, you know, black man who's done, you know, a couple of commercials as a PA, right. um, but is like maybe gaffed his own personal projects. Right. Uh, you know, how do I, how do I determine, um, you know, if, if, if the right thing to do is to hire this other person? Right. Like, how do I figure out how to be more inclusive? Go with the inclusive decision or? No, I mean, in general, um, first of all, I always let my head of departments choose their oh, crews. Okay. But I will also say that when it comes to like heads of departments or whatever, I, I do tell people like my expectation is that we will always try to be more inclusive, that right. my films are about underrepresented voices right. and whatever they happen to be. So all things being equal, we are have to be a crew and a cast and a story about underrepresented voices. Right. And if that is a possibility that will not be a hindrance to the film in any way, then we should always make the more inclusive choice. Right. And you know, for the most part, so many of these people, when your resume is really tiny because, you know, you're not getting put out on the jobs and, you know, people don't know you and you come from an untraditional background, like, oh, right. you didn't go to NYU, you didn't go to USC. Right. Um, you know, like, for example, there's an organization here in San Francisco called Baycat. And oh, yeah. I am, like, ecstatic about these yeah, people. And, you know, if I see Baycat on a resume, I don't care what else is on it. I'm like, I'm in. We're yeah. hiring these people. You're like Baycat versus 15 features. You're like, Baycat's good enough for me. I take that. So, yeah, I mean, and part of it is just knowing those people mm -hmm. and like calling Baycat and say, I need a crew. Who do you have? I've said this before and I've heard this on lots of other podcasts and conversations is that it's not necessarily the resume that you want to hire off of anyways. You're hiring the best people who have the best attitudes and the best personality and people know, who get your work right yeah and who are going to be good to work with on set like you much rather have a nice person with like you know two movie credits than you know a person who's like tough to work with who has 20 movie credits you know but also like exactly like um Samia was saying like if i had the choice of like i can have 10 people from um very traditional backgrounds who will work for semi-free or I've got 10 people from wildly underrepresented backgrounds who need a rate. Right. Um, I will go to my producers and I'll say, I really need to pay people. Like, mm -hmm. because these are the people that will make the movie more interesting, will have unusual perspectives, and this is the core of what you signed up for. 
is to celebrate underrepresented voices. And I need you to go find me $5,000. And what's the response when you've done that? Either they say, that sounds great. Or I, you know, if they say no, I'll say, we need to really talk about what we're doing here. Because if you're blocking me on this $5,000 I need to get a wildly interesting underrepresented group of artists, then like, you know, I don't know why we're working together. Like right. we must, we, we, we misunderstood each other. Right, right. Because the $5,000, if, if you're a producer who can't find $5,000 somewhere in the budget or from someone, right. you know, I think that as a filmmaker, I have a business plan. And my business plan is make excellent movies that celebrate underrepresented voices right. and have underrepresented crew and that we're humane and we pay people and people are insured and people are safe. Right, right. And if you're not on board with that always, Right. then you're not on board. Well, just to play devil's advocate, though, like $5,000 is a lot of money in a budget, especially in my world. I guess when you're on certain levels working with certain bigger name companies, like that shouldn't be an issue, right? Like if you're working for 20th Century Fox or Warner Brothers, like $5,000 should be a problem. But when you're like, you know, scraping the budget together, you have no money. It's like $5,000 is, is hard, sure. you know? But I think... What you're saying is like having the mindset and being behind the idea and like being sympathetic to it and like saying, I'll do my best, I'll really try, like let's try to figure this out. Yeah. That's different than saying like, no, shut the door in your well, face. And if you go to your crew, these people that you wanna hire and you right. say, we went to, you know, the Zuckerberg Chan organization, we went to every single organization that is supporting underrepresented um, artists right. and we asked them for $100. And we went to 50 people and we only got $2,000. Right. But we needed five. Right. And we're doing our absolute best. Um, this is all we can do. Yeah, yeah. We have tapped out everything. Yeah. Will you still work with us? I'd be shocked if they all said absolutely not. Right. They would, they would make the effort because you made the effort for them, like, you know, to get them what they needed. They may make the effort for you to, to meet in the middle, you know? And so like, and you know, and you can say like, oh, but we did get like free catering or right. we got some, something else going on. Right. But if you just said, you know what, $5,000, I just don't have it. I need you to work for free. Right. right. Um, or for, not for free, but for whatever, the, the lower rate, you know? Right. I mean, that's kind of a cop out. And right. so, I mean, for me. And so, and I hear you on the $5,000, but I feel like I, I've produced, you know, features and other things. And if somebody had said to me, I have this amazing, you know, underrepresented artist, like a cinematographer or someone. Right. And this is a gig where it'll change their lives. Right. And they're going to quit their job. Right. to do this for me right. and I need to give them rent money. I have to. Right. Can you hook me up? Like I am, I'm canceling my week. Right. I'm you, calling everyone I know. You'll figure it out. Like this, I mean, that's, this is what has to be done. Cause right. if we don't, if the easier answer is to say, I know this white guy, he's got a full-time job. He can take the week off. Right. You know, he's got a trust fund. Right. Why are we bothering? Right. I'm like, you're, you don't belong on my set. Right, you're, you're missing the point. You're the status quo, man. You're the lowest common denominator. Right, right. It's sort of like, you know, I used to work with a scary cow. Oh, yeah. And there's always this thing that happens um, where somebody, usually a white guy, Sorry, white guys. I love you guys. I'm just so, some know, of you. It's rough. I know. I, I know. I, I understand. I can, I'm, we can take it. We've had it pretty good, right? <laughs> also, this is film. This is a world that has been dominated yeah. by white dudes for just right. about forever. Right. I mean, if we're really going to start to shake it up and like 
really figure out what the way forward is. We need to talk about things like this. We have to be open and willing to have the discussion, even if it's like a little uncomfortable. Well, and I feel like there's a lot of people who are mediocre cinematographers who buy a really great camera. And they sort of say, if you let me shoot your film, I'll bring my gear. And to a first time director, this sounds great. Because you're like, ooh, I want to shoot on a red epic, whatever it is, a dragon. Um, and so you're thrilled and then you're on set and the person cannot, they have no idea about lenses, but they've, they don't know lighting, they're fumbling around, they're unwrapping the plastic on their lenses (laughs) and you're just like, what have I done? You know, just to be able to have like 4k, which now, or 8k, whatever. And now like. Not only is my editing and my workflow just a disaster, but... The movie doesn't even look any good because it doesn't matter how good your camera is. If you don't know how to use it, and I've seen things shot on red, which looked like they were shot on mini DV, you know, and it's like, you know. And so, you know, so many, like so often the things that you think you need because they're, or like are offered to you because they're free, there's this inherent cost that you did not anticipate. I, I've done my very, very best to stick to my guns. And like I said, there I, I canceled my film for seven months, which was right. embarrassing and horrifying. And I was ashamed of myself because I felt like I left everybody down. You know, like I had cast, I had crew, I had production designers, like I had so much going on. And I basically had to say, uh, I don't have like anything. I'm not ready to go. I can't. I have no crew. Like I trusted somebody to help me crew and get everything organized and they didn't want to do what was correct. They didn't really believe in you. And they didn't believe in me. Is really like the key, yeah. you know, and that's all we as filmmakers, we need people to believe in us, Totally. you know. And you know, and I and I understand like there were certainly parts where even in my last thing people were just like, "Oh my gosh, like I cannot find anyone but the dudes I know." Right. to do this and so like I would get like what's it called like the real guide right the real directory the real yeah. directory yeah, yeah. I would like pull out the real directory and I was even calling people like Hilton and saying do you know any uh, first ADs that aren't white men do you know any right, right. I'm just looking for one right. you know and I had I was calling I, I called like maybe 30 people wow. um, looking desperately and, and I and I failed you know I had this one person our sound recordist uh, I was like, so, like, where do you live? Because I, I put out a call on Twitter or something. And, um, and she, she, she came, she did this great work, and she's like, oh, yeah, I drove up from L.A. Wow. I'm like, what? Wow. And she's like, you know, I, I, I read about your commitment and what you're trying to do and your, com- your crew commitment, and I was like, I need to work on this. Wow. And she brought all of her own gear, That's and she didn't complain. Amazing. She put herself up in a hotel. That's wonderful. And it was crazy. And so, you know, so, on one hand, you're like, now I'm paying this person. But the other hand, people are like, I work in LA on TV. Like, I, I, I can take a day off. Right, right. You know, and this is why I do it. And all the Bay Area sound mixers are screaming at the top of their lungs, why'd you hire an LA person? I didn't know she was in LA. <laughs> no, I know. And she worked for free. No, no, no. I think, it's, I think that's a really great story and just goes to show, like, what people will do when you're, you know, it's not just about the movie. It's also about believing in something that you're passionate about, you know, and trying to make a change. Because, yeah, I don't know. I feel like right now, and this is something I'm really excited to talk to you guys about because um, it's not always that I'm in the room of two women filmmakers, you know, as the single man. But uh, what do you think about the way things have gone, like right now? Because I think there's a lot of um, feeling of things are changing, things are better. There's a lot of women directors making things now. There's a lot of like, you know, we're, we're doing it. We're post Me Too. It's looking great. But 
I don't really feel, from my perspective, it doesn't really feel like it's all changed that much, and it's kind of like all surface. And I wanted to know what you guys thought. Like, is that we are not post me too? People need to stop saying that. Like, people always like in this post me too. I'm like, what are you talking about? We literally like, there have been like ants. Right. Under like the sticky situation for a really long time, and we right. literally just opened it. Right. I don't know if I've ever heard post Me Too other than a context right. of Me Too started, right. and we're post like it's sort right. of like That's saying like, I mean, like, yeah. like 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 post 9/11. Right. It's like yeah, we're not in the middle of an explosion, right. but like we're still in a wars related to it. Right. You know. I, I feel like it hasn't even ended yet. You know. I don't think it's barely even begun. And yeah. like, you know, you still hear stories of terrible things happening on sets. Like, you know, in this, like where you, in an area where you think like that couldn't possibly be happening anymore, yeah. it's still happening. I, I was talking to a potential producer. At one point, he confided in me saying, um, you know, where are we having the after party? And I was like, I don't know. I mean, sure, we could find a bar or something. He's like, no, I like to be in a hotel because I, uh, I usually like to wait until after the film is shot to um, have sex with people from the crew and, and, and the cast. Wow. And I was like, you were planning this into your... This is like before you shot the movie? Yeah, it was before I shot the movie. Oh and he was really, and he was just like, I, I, I usually have sex with a bunch of the cast and crew after <laughs> oh, the, the production, God. usually after the wrap party. Wow. So if we could shoot at a hotel, that would be best for me. Oh my God. And, I, and in the moment, I, I regret to say, I was like, I mean, I guess there's like attractive people. I, but I was just so shocked. Like, yeah, like, that's like totally, like how do you even respond to that? I didn't even know what to say. And now what I would say is like, we're done. Like we're literally done. Right. And I'm sure the this person would, would be surprised if I said that. Wow. Um, because they clearly thought that this was cool. Right. That like, this yeah, was. No yeah, it's like, well, we're show. done. Like they took the precaution of waiting till the whole thing was done. So, you know, it's actually kind of okay in their brains. And, you know, and the same person I found out later regularly, like, lured people in to do headshots and then encouraged other things to happen. You know, and so, um, you know, there's there's things like that that are still happening. And um, these people are still happily finding work. And I, I think that we are still in, you know, in Me Too. I think that men have a healthy fear of repercussions right. um, but not but if they are in enough power you, it just means that somebody is either willing to lose their job and be on the internet as a victim right. or on the internet as an accuser right. which is not a good place to be right. um, or you are you know or you, you're being like a sexist pig with somebody who you control enough that they're not going to say anything right. and that's always been true in my opinion, and this might be a negative thing to say, is that it's not really ever going to end. Like, m- people in power are always going to take advantage of people who are below them. And I think that it's up to us to um, be vocal and, you know, not not hide things and speak out against these things. And, you know, I know it's easier said than done. And I think in the, the fact that you can still hear stories and have still people not feel comfortable talking about it you know, publicly or in any way at all, it's like that this shows that it's not an easy thing to do. I think it's hard to incentivize for good behavior sometimes. I think it is, um, we incentivize toward ignoring these things. 
well, I don't know, ideas of what we can do to make things better? Well, first of all, I would, I think we would be in a, maybe not post Me Too, we would be maybe in phase two of Me Too. Right. When we finally get to the point where it doesn't feel like there's an enormous glass ceiling for women in film, right. especially women directors, you know, I would like to see more films. Like, in the past year, I could probably count on my on like five fingers, like the amount of films that I've seen that like have been in the mainstream by women directors. Mm-hmm. And I know they're always independent filmmakers doing really wonderful things, but who's actually getting the funding and who's getting the budgets? You know, right. you know. There is a glass ceiling in the sense that like a lot of women directors after their first film often go to TV because that's where they can find work, if even, you know? And I feel like until we get to the point where I'm seeing more films that are getting more budgets, like until everybody's getting like Eva DuVernay-sized budgets, and even she has to fight for those. And she's like super talented, you know, until we get there. It just doesn't feel like because then, you know, it like ricochets and then you can hire more women department heads and then you can put more women in positions where people don't feel like they're compromising anything to be on set or feel unsafe. You know, it's Mm -hmm. just about having more people in the workplace. So I had another uh, filmmaker on talking about this recently and the episode hasn't come out yet, but she was talking about how the stats haven't really changed much in the last five, ten years that we're not really actually seeing more uh, female directors at all. It's the kind of going down, if anything, you know, as, especially in studio system. Mm-hmm. That's where her numbers are coming from. Mm-hmm. But like as a viewer, like I feel like I'm seeing more women's names at, on the director's like credit for films. But I'm wondering if that's just because I'm looking for it and I'm paying attention and that like maybe I saw just as many uh, women's names as directors on previous films, but I just wasn't really processing it before and so I feel like it's changing but it's really not you know and so I don't know I think it's really interesting and I think that um you know I've heard other people say in passing or read it in podcast or heard it in podcasts or something where it's like yeah things are getting better you know and like you know it's 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 changing for the better and then you look look at the real world and it's not so I don't know what what do you think like like do you in your world do you feel like there's is a big change or do you think it's just like the same same old same old same problems I mean it is true that the numbers of directors that are getting especially um you know theatrical release is wavering between like seven and nine percent um and it went up I think it was two years ago it was nine percent now it's back at seven to six mm-hmm. uh and so and I do think exactly what you said uh, there's a lot of films where now you know previously having a woman director wouldn't have been a celebrated aspect of the marketing, right. you know, and now it is, right. um, you know, like for the farewell of Lulu Wang, like you hear about it and right. you see her, right. um, and you see Aquafina and you see, you know, the people that were part of it, um, or Greta Gerwig or, you know, when, um, Olivia Wilde just did Booksmart. Yeah, exactly. Um, however, if you look at, you know, Booksmart, that was on 2,500 screens. Mm-hmm. Um, and it made about, um, you know, let's see, I think it was like $20,000 per screen. It's, it was made for $1 million, uh, and I think it made around um, $60 million in profit. Right. Um, you know, and just to sort of, you know, another film, like, you know, the most profitable film out right now is Joker, right. um, which is, you know, a, uh, you know, an A-list actor, Joaquin right. Phoenix. Right. Um, you know, and that was released on 250,000 screens in 73 markets. Um, it's made $550 million, uh, which is around $40,000 per theater. Right. Um, so, and so much of that 
you know, if you had taken a film like Booksmart, which I think is 98% on Rotten Tomatoes, right. and given it more markets, and given it more screens, um, it could have made a lot more money. Well, I mean, based on how many markets it was in and how it's doing right now on VOD, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and it just didn't have the marketing budget, but obviously it didn't have, you know, a built-in comic book. Right. It's not a superhero movie, right. which, I mean, Joker isn't really a superhero movie, but it is because it's got the Joker in it, you know. But there was, like, a hungry audience for it. And, um, you know, Olivia Wilde, again, $1 million is nothing right. for a feature film like that. Right. Um, especially given who she is. Right. Right. But she was a first-time filmmaker, though, right? Which, I mean, I feel like getting a million dollars for your first film is a pretty good deal, you I, know? Sure. But, I mean, there are other examples where, uh, what's his name? Christopher Nolan's cinematographer, his first feature. Do you remember what budget that was? It was like $80 million or something for uh, Transparent, which was totally terrible <laughs> and it's like why are you giving that guy 80 million dollars to make his first feature and or even like colin trevorrow and needed safety not guaranteed that was like what seven million was it really wow and it was um you know his second movie ever was jurassic world yeah which is like whatever 160 and million he was also <laughs> promised uh star wars 9 right which obviously right. he didn't make but right, right. that was that be his third movie right um so and you know i remember you know and i like colin um, I think he's, you know, um, an interesting person. Uh, but, you know, th there was a lot of conversations and anger around why he was getting these opportunities. Oh, interesting. And, well, you know, and it, to get the two largest franchises after a movie that most people haven't seen. Right. Well, I mean, isn't that like a trend that's happening? Like, where they'll, they'll hire young independent filmmakers to, you know, direct these big budget movies. And it, I think, I don't really know why, but I think one of the reasons is control because they feel like this person is... You know, they made one movie, it was like a darling, an indie darling, and now we're going to give them, you know, Fantastic Four or, you know, uh, the, the whatever, the King Kong movie, you know, and they'll, they'll do what we say because they're young blood, you know. Um, How many women? Young bloods are there? Not, yeah. not, not there right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and part of the problem is that when asked, like, Lucas and Spielberg, you know, like, why did you give Star Wars or why did you give Jurassic World? It was like... I see myself. Oh, interesting. Which, you know, yeah, it's a, you know, mm, it's a right. kind of a, a bearded white guy, a little, you know, <laughs> right. uh, you know, this late 30s, right. he's, got, he's got a couple kids, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, from Vermont. Uh, yeah. There's a certain thing going on. Of course. Um, and, and when that's the thing that attracts you to giving somebody a billion dollar opportunity, a life changing, mm -hmm. you know, now one of like the stars of filmmaking, right. um, you know, having it be acceptable and having it be reasonable to say, I hired that person because they looked like me and they reminded me of myself. Right. Um, and to have that be okay right. is a weird thing. It is weird. Um, and I, and we, we do it as humans, but I think it is the onus is upon us um, as people who dictate many of the mores and ideals of society through our storytelling right. um, to reject that. It's the same reason why, you know, you'll see a lot of uh, leads in movies represent the director. You know, like you'll look at the lead and you look at the director and you're like, oh, they look very similar. And so I'm like very much trying not to fall into that at all. Although if I cast, uh, you know, let's say, um, you know, Yahya Abdul-Mateen in my movie, which I won't be able to get him, but I could argue that he kind of looks like me because he's got a beard, you know, even though different skin color, but same build, you know, but I feel like... You get a pass with that one. No, I don't know. 
I mean, I'm just saying, like, it doesn't have to be the same color of the skin for me to relate to seeing that person in the, yeah, the character that I've right. written, you know? Like, I don't have to be like, it has to be a white guy because I'm a white guy, you know? But on the other hand, like, there's also amazing programs right now, like um, HBO has amazing opportunities um, in coordination with Urban World to, um, to find and support and um, put a spotlight, especially on black filmmakers. Right. Um, they're doing amazing things. Um, you know, a lot of film festivals now, um, you know, really are trying very hard to focus on underrepresented voices, whether right. that's people of color or women or whatever it is. Um, you know, so I think there is, especially at the indie level, um, a real, you know, a real focus there. And there's other people, um, like two especially, and of course they're women, um, which is Mira Nair, uh, who made The Queen of Katwe. Mm -hmm. She has a filmmaking studio um, that's based out of Uganda, uh -huh. and she teaches, um, and she has them actually, she has like six or seven that she was doing. She's at Columbia right now teaching, but um, I think she's going to go back to it. But she, um, I think it was like for six or seven years, she was helping um, young African filmmakers from um, East and West Africa, um, she was um, helping them make their first films and bringing in cinematographers and crews and wow. making films. Um, so she was like, I'm not gonna try to throw you into like the Bollywood system or the Hollywood system. We are making our own system. Uh, and we now have um, all kinds of actors like uh, Keanu Carlo from, oh, yeah, yeah. Him, he was involved there. From uh, Breaking Bad from Breaking and Bad. a lot of other stuff now. Yeah. Uh, he's in the new Mandalorian show, which I'm excited to see him in that. Totally. And um, one of the, oh God, I wish I could remember her name. One of the lead actresses in Black Panther had also gone through her program. Oh, really? Yeah, um, so, you know, Miranair, again, just really walking the walk of, I, w I got this opportunity. Um, her first film uh, was nominated for an Academy Award. She oh, did wow. it for like no money. Um, and it was called like uh, Salam Uprising. Uh, it was nominated for Academy Award Best uh, Foreign Film. Um, but she also has made other movies like Kama Sutra, uh, Queen of Katwe. She's made a whole bunch of others. But um, and then you know Ava DuVernay, who now has her own studio, um, you know Array. Uh, she uh, you know now she's a distributor. She has um, you know she's she's really she's the person and because of Queen Sugar, she is single handedly. Um, helping women, only women, mm -hmm. um, move from being indie filmmakers into getting their DGA card. Oh, wow. So one of the, I have a film festival called Coven, and the winner of um, Best Director last year was a woman named Bola Ogan who made um, a movie about a black mermaid called uh, okay. Water Phoenix, okay. and she made another movie that premiered at South by Southwest called Are We Good Parents, mm. um, which was amazing. Um, I showed it at our film festival and she won, and directly, and also she and I um, shared the stage for an award um, that AT&T gave us. It was presented by Ava DuVernay um, for Best Filmmaker. Uh, anyway, and so Ava gave her uh, an episode of Queen Sugar, and now she just finished wrapping on her second episode of Legacies. Oh, wow. And this has all happened in the last six months. Wow. So Ava is single-handedly introducing more women and more people of color into the DGA than literally anyone and that is something that i think is required and that we all have to do at every level of filmmaking i like that you said that because i think there tends to be this um 
there tends to be this sense with like white men now. Like I've I've watched a lot of films where this is like a common joke that they're throwing around. Like, right. oh, it's such a hard time for a white man. Yeah, and they no, say I it like you know, they say like it's it's a joke and we're supposed to laugh and it's like ha ha ha. But people are literally saying that. Yeah, it's people insane. are saying that now. It's and insane. I know that there are listeners of this hopefully, but you know there always are. There are probably people who are going to listen to this and it's like, what am I supposed to do? Is it a hard time right. for me? And now people complain about like all of the, you know, inclusive programs, you know, and like I don't I can't get into the Warner Brothers this program or the HBO that program and it's like well maybe it's time for someone else to, to have some focus to have some attention like we've had it for over 100 years I Let's mean it is here. still hard like it's still hard very difficult out here for all of us right. but with that said it's like white dudes of the world you still have privileges and when you Absolutely. are in the position where you can actually call shots you can be part of the conversation. You don't have to be the part person that's like outside of it. If a Duvernay doesn't have to be the only person spared in this, right. you know, right. there are other dudes who could do this, who have the power to do this, are right. just not, and they're just like, oh, it's a difficult time for us. Right. And I feel like, you know, if Roman Polanski and Woody Allen and, you know, can be at, at Venice and premiere their films there, to great accolades and Marvel movies like Joker can win Venice. There's not a not white man to be seen in any of that, and a couple of you know convictions over there. Um, you know, I, I believe in white men that they can also do that. I believe you can do it. That there's room for you. Believe in you, white men. You can. You can do no, it. No, seriously, stop excluding yourself from the conversation. Right. Include yourself. Well, just do what you can to. Like, there's a lot you can do to make a difference as uh, a white person. I just feel like this whole inclusion thing where you're talking about, you know, doing a 50% women, 50% men on set. Anyone could do that. You don't have to be a, a woman. You don't have to be a person of color to do that. Robert Pattinson oh, yeah. is like, you know, um, he's like worked with Claire Denise. He's worked with like his big movie was um, Catherine Hardwick. I mean, he works with women. I mean, there's lots of people um, who, you know, make an effort uh, oh actually i think number one in working with women directors is keanu reeves because of oh, course right. he's our patron saint um but yeah i mean if you are a woman filmmaker um and you're and you need someone big i, I i'd recommend you call keanu oh yeah yeah wow. i'm sorry keanu in advance but um you know i feel like nice. you know there, there are people in the industry who do who do the similar um right. sort of idea of you know i am going to give extra assistance right um, and using what I have right. to help people. Right. And no matter what position you are, whether you're an actor, an investor, a gaffer, whatever it is, um, you can find a way. Like I, I recently had a guy, a gaffer, he had his own truck, and I was like, hey, I have this young you know, woman who's just starting out, and I kind of hired her as my gaffer. Right. And, um, and he's like, okay. I'm like, so, what do you, so what, why are you calling me? I'm like, can you give her your truck and be a grip? And he's like, um, well, but and I'm like, yeah, I mean, because you could help her, right? Right. And he was like, um, I feel awkward about that. I'm like, yeah, I'm sure she'd feel awkward if I told her I didn't want her to be the gaffer anymore. I needed her to use all your gear and be a grip. Right. And he was like, oh, well, okay. And he did it. Oh, wow. And it wow. was a little, it was awkward for a minute. But then, you know, he was like, I really wanted to help. I really believe in inclusion. Yeah. And I realized that what I need to do was take a step back for a minute. Right. Yeah. And it felt weird. 
but I believed in it and it was amazing and I was surprised. Wow. And That's awesome. um, yeah, and he's like, if you need to do it again, I'll do it. Wow. Because I'm okay taking this, because I don't need the credit. Right. You know, and, um, you know. He can be like, you know, a, a mentor of sorts, you know, in a way or a supporter, you know, to this person. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and that's the other thing is like, you've already got it. You know, you've already carved out your piece. Right. And this isn't a job that's really making you a lot of money because it's like an artistic project. Right. What if you did take a step back? Like, what would that be like for you? Right. And, you know, having somebody say like, oh, I want to do a cookie over here and be like, I would never. Okay, let's, I have no idea. And then if, you know, if she asks you, like, what do you think? You can tell her, obviously, or give other ideas. But, right. you know, there's something amazing in, in, in yeah. being able to be the person that helps. Sort of like Mr. Roger says, you know, look for the helpers, man. Any last words, any last final thoughts here about this? I mean, obviously, we just need to do better, right? I mean, I think just as human beings in yeah. general. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. We're all on this tiny little planet. Right, making some good movies, hopefully. Like, be willing to help people if you can. It's really that simple. Like, try not to think about yourself. And it's like, if, you, if people need more incentive, you know, other than just, like, the goodness of your heart or whatever, right, right. it's like, if you include yourself in these conversations, you want to be thought of... You know, we are, I don't plan to stop making stuff. I'm sure Cameo doesn't plan to stop making stuff. Right. And they're like a thousand, of, like there are a lot of us, you know, right. who are marching forward and wanting to change the industry. You want to include yourself as part of that conversation rather than be the one who's left behind right. and be the guy who was the one who didn't budge. If you didn't see lots of other women on set making movies or if this another person who's watching you didn't see you make your movies if like let's say you weren't able to make your movies for some reason it wouldn't continue so that's why i think we all have to support you know women making films because you know in order for it to actually change we have to continue it you know it can't just stop yeah there's that you know there's that saying of um if you can see it you can be it and i remember like one of my favorite films uh coming out as a kid was uh uh, Real Art, uh, Real Genius, oh, yeah. which was amazing. And I was so ashamed of myself like five or six years ago and I realized it was directed by a woman and oh, really? it never occurred to me. Wow. Or like, you know, like Pet Cemetery, oh, yeah. another film that we wow. grew up with that we never saw as like a feminist film or right. a woman's film, right? It scared the heck out of me. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It was horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, and I think now we would celebrate it. Uh, right. But back then it was just, you know, something that was taken for granted right. of how amazing these directors are. So with that, Kameo, where can we find your work? Where should people go to, to find out all the beautiful things that you've made? Yeah, um, well, you could head over to my website, uh, cameowood.com. You can find out more about real artists at realartists.film. And you can learn more about my film festival at covenfilmfest.com. And you can learn all about my company and my internships and a um, series of dinners I do for women filmmakers uh, at charmingstranger.com. Thank you, Samia and Camille, for a fantastic episode. Thank you. We had such a great time. Well, thank you for listening, and thanks to Kameo Wood and Samia Salami for being on this episode. And double thank you for Samia for setting this whole thing up, and to Kameo for hosting the interview in her office. Check out our website, makingmoviesishard.com, where you can find links to the things we talked about on this episode, including those uh, perfect frames that Ulrich and I were, were discussing earlier. 
If you want to get in contact with us, send us an email to podcast at makingmoviesisheart.com. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Get us to 10,000 likes at MMIH Podcast. I am at Liz Manichel on Twitter, and you are... At Ulrich B on Twitter and Instagram. And if you like the show, tell a friend, help to get, get the word out, leave a review on iTunes, toss us some Chipotle money on uh, Patreon, <laughs> and right. thank you so much for listening. Finally, thank you so much to our producers Greg Holtzman and Joshua Sterling Bragg, editor Allison Stoney, the whole Bloodstream Media team for making this episode possible. We are eternally grateful to you, and we will talk to all of you next week. Oh, crap, crap. I did, I did scroll down. <laughs> this is like the most important thing to say. Um... Finally, thank you so much to our producers, Greg Holtzman, Joshua Sterling. Oh, shit, Joshua Sterling back. Okay. Thank you so much.